0: From
1: GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCauer here at GreenBiz Headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On today's edition, the state of green business, green chemistry meets the circular economy, and the sustainability playbook for Super Bowl 50. It's 1st and 10, this week on 350. It's February 5th, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm here at GreenBiz Studio with Senior Editor Lauren Hepler. Hey, Lauren.
2: Hey there. In the full grips of Super Bowl madness.
1: Oh, well, this is, uh, you know, it's right here in the Bay Area, just about 40 miles away from us where we're sitting in, at Levi's Stadium in Santa Clara, and uh San Francisco has taken on a su- certain grip of that, even the uh, Super Bowl madness. There's a Super Bowl city uh, at the foot of Market Street right on the Embarcadero. It's kind of crazy.
2: Yeah. Have you been?
1: I was there Saturday night for the uh, the launch, the opening uh, of, of the whole thing, and the fireworks display, and Chris Isaac. Um, oh, big, big, there you go. Big I heard Isaac there's guy.
2: all kinds of concerts and stuff going
1: on. Yeah. Uh, uh, my wife wants to go this weekend for the Puppy Bowl.
2: Oh, yes, that's definitely that's top of the list for sure. <laughs> yeah, it
1: starts today. um and uh yeah and and then, as you know, I'm going to the Super Bowl. I yeah. get to go to the game. I'm gonna uh, uh, my friends at nrg energy are uh, are taking us down there and uh giving showing us a good time so i'm 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 pretty excited. I've never been to a super bowl
3: yeah
2: i'm gonna pester you more about that in a few minutes when we talk to neil duffy who is the sustainability chief of the super bowl he stopped by to talk to us a little bit about what he's been working on um but let's jump right into the weekend review (coughs)
1: So each week on Green Biz 350 we take a look at some of the key stories of the past week and in the spirit of Super Bowl, let's kick things off by talking about food.
2: Yes, we had a few food stories this week. Uh, One particularly interesting one was by our senior writer, Heather Clancy, who did a piece on what Campbell's bold new GMO plan means for the food label wars. So lots of controversial things there. You've got GMOs and obviously the fight that's happening at both the state level and the federal level over how you disclose the ingredients in our food. Um, which obviously has been a big topic for a while now, but Campbell has actually come out. um, They've been one of these companies advocating for a national policy so that you don't have sort of contradictory laws at the state level, but they've come out and said now that they're going to back out of the state fights and that they are not only... um, pro the ability for companies to say they have non-GMO products, they're also going to advocate that all products that do have GMOs have to be labeled.
1: Yeah, and this is a real break in in what had been a solid front on the part of big food to resist having to label GMOs. And Again, this isn't about whether genetically modified organisms should even be in food. It's simply a matter of disclosing if they are. What it reminds me of, Lauren, is the whole thing around gas fuel economy back uh, in the day when when uh, the auto companies were fighting state by state, uh, trying to stop them from raising or setting any fuel standards around uh, fuel efficiency of cars. California finally set one, and, and that sort of became the de facto. But they still uh, stopped. They were suing, and they were protesting, and they were working at every state legislature. Uh, and 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 finally, uh, some car companies said, you know, GM I think was one of them. They said, look, we have to stop this. Let's just get on with it, and and agreed finally to some national legislation. So I'm wondering whether this is the first step to what a lot of ad- advocates, uh, my friend Gary Hirschberg, the founder of Stonyfield Farm, and people like Gwyneth Paltrow and others who have been out there beating the bushes about national labeling standards. Do you think that's going to happen?
2: I mean, it, this certainly seems like an interesting change in the tide. I know California, we went through a big fight a couple years ago over a ballot initiative on this uh, that drew lots and lots of money <laughs> against it. And so, lost. Right, and lost, um, which some people attributed to all the money that was being used on ads against it.
1: No, there's, clearly it was the amount of money that Big Food uh, poured millions and millions of dollars to defeat that. So I don't, I don't even think that was a question.
2: Mm-hmm. And so the question now is whether Big Food as an entity beyond one company, as Big as Campbell is, uh, whether we'll start to see this kind of shift in other policies as well. So
1: we saw General Mills last year, I think it was, uh, took a stand with Cheerios and saying that they weren't going to put any genetically modified uh, products in there. Now, just to be clear, there, there are no genetically modified oats. So this was really about mm-hmm. the sugar or, or some other ingredients that were part of this, maybe the dextrose, which comes from corn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, they took a stand and it made some waves. And, and it, everyone else did not follow. They did not create a parade, so it'll be interesting to see whether, in this case, Campbell's, which took this admittedly bold stand... Uh, is going to be actually a lone voice out there or creating a whole new category in the supermarket shelves.
2: Mm -hmm. And one other thing that's an interesting sort of headwind here is that um, this is definitely part of the broader push to take a closer look at food supply chains. Campbell recently made a $230 million acquisition of a company called Garden Fresh Gourmet. So part of the whole push into more fresh and natural foods that there's consumer demand for.
1: And one part of the food supply chain has to do with food waste, which was the topic of another story that we ran this week by GreenBiz senior writer Barbara Grady.
2: Yeah, so Barbara looked at an interesting uh, sort of coalition that's formed. Uh, it's Sedexo, the big food services and facilities management company, along with Deloitte, um, Mission Point Capital Partners, an impact investing firm, and the Closed Loop Fund, which is big on recycling and reuse. And they took it upon themselves to sort of study the economics of food waste, which, as we know, sort of laying out the business case for a sustainability issue is obviously sort of a way for businesses to maybe get more involved. Um, that that group is called Refed, which stands for Rethink Food Waste through Economics and Data. Um, we'll actually have some of the participants at GreenBiz 16 later this month in Phoenix. But um, really, what they're looking to do is sort of create a roadmap for actually reducing food waste. Because because, as you alluded, Joel, we've known this is a supply chain pain point for a long time.
1: Yeah, and the closed loop fund I think is an interesting part of this. They're a uh, uh, venture fund; as they call themselves a social impact fund, uh, where they raise 100 million dollars to increase recycling of products and packaging. But the money has come from Walmart, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, Johnson and Johnson, Procter and Gamble, Unilever, 3M, Colgate-Palmolive, and some others. Um, and they are trying to uh, they, they just found a need to jump start municipal recycling programs uh, around the country, around the US. Uh, and, uh, because they want uh, the raw material. They, there's not enough recycled material for them to put back into production that they want to to increase the recycled content of what they're doing. And so uh, that's one part of it. And then food, you know, comes along with a lot of this recycling and and how do we address food waste? uh is is going to be uh i think an interesting part of this uh, we'll have as you said Rob Kaplan the managing director of um uh the closed loop fund at Greenbiz talking about this and i think Sodexo will be there as well uh so these are interesting part of the food waste uh, topic which we called out last year in the state of green business report as one of the the big trends for 2015 and and, and i really think that uh, came to be.
2: Yeah, I think the the phrase was that it, the issue is emerging from the dumpster. <laughs> and I think that's certainly true when you just look at the sheer uh, amount of money that, that is kind of being squandered here. The UN estimates that about $750 billion worth of food and $940 billion in economic activity is squandered through food waste. Um, obviously, while well, millions of people are going hungry, so a really obvious inefficiency that needs to be addressed.
1: Right. And and a lot of this is not things that we do at home where we just don't finish everything because there are children starving in whatever country <laughs> your, your country. parents pick. But um, it's really a lot of it has to do with uh, the processing of food or the food that gets spoiled at the, uh, at the uh, supermarket or, or sometimes in storage and warehouses. Uh, I was just in a conversation uh, with a big supermarket chain this week, and we're talking about exactly this topic. And 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 just as things as simple as sell-by dates, uh, which uh, can be artificial, and it's mm-hmm. it's not necessarily when the food goes bad. But uh, I mean, there was one thing that they had to sell yogurt at least 21 days before its sell-by date, and if it wasn't, then they returned it, or they donated it, or they landfilled it. And, you know, I asked, well, who picked that 21 days? And, you know, is that real or is that arbitrary? Because it be 20, 20 days or 18 days or 15 days or whatever? Because the fewer days, the less waste. And so it's, it's, a lot of this stuff is just kind of arbitrary, old line practices that need to change.
2: And is that is that a sales gimmick to get people to buy more stuff? Or what is it then?
1: Well, I think it's something to do with... Um, it could be partly that. I think it's something to do with just super conservative risk management, uh, that that's, that there's no way on earth that, that this could be deemed bad mm-hmm. or, you know, taste the taste could change. Uh, but it's not because it becomes uh, unhealthy to eat, for example, or just spoiled in general. And, and so a lot of these, there is no standard for sell by or they even call. It. It's used by, best best by this date or must, you know, expires this date. They, they're not even called the same thing. And things as simple as that contribute to a lot of a lot of the food waste problem
2: cringing thinking of all the things in my refrigerator that are probably creeping up on those days. Yeah, but, think, let's not go there. <laughs> yeah, but I, uh, you're talking about sort of the infrastructure challenges that arise when you think about ways to effectively recover food waste. Uh, we also had an interesting look this week at a very different infrastructure issue and that's this whole idea of climate resilience and how cities can build to withstand the shocks associated with climate change, whether that's sea level rise or social turmoil, political instability uh we had a great contribution from our friends at 100 resilient cities which is a rockefeller foundation offshoot that i know you're familiar with yeah this is
1: uh, an organization founded uh, two three years ago so this was a program that was set up by the rockefeller foundation as you said although it's since been spun off as a separate organization called 100 resilient cities and the the really interesting idea that behind it is can they seed uh cities with chief resilience officers um to make cities more resilient and we talk about what that means but but uh so they've funded for i think two years this position in a hundred cities around the world probably uh uh 20 or so in the in, in the u.s and 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 the rest all over the place um and really, this experiment is: what does it take? What does it city resilience even mean? Mm-hmm. And as you said, it's, it's it's resilience to any kind of shock. Climate shock being one of the obvious ones from an environmental perspective. But there's you know there's civil unrest, there's political unrest, uh, there's there's economic turmoil, there's public health issues, uh, and of course terrorism. And and their job is really to marshal the forces that often often already exist. Just getting everyone to talk to to, to one another. Uh, What does it mean to be resilient? How does a city bounce back quickly from whatever comes at it and who needs to be involved? And so it's a really interesting perspective, and of course, we, you know, our, our take on this has to do with climate resilience.
2: Mm-hmm. And I, the thing I liked about this piece was that it drilled down with two real-life chief resilience officers from Durban, South Africa, and Boulder, Colorado, into how they are actually projecting the impact that climate change is going to have on their local areas. Because as we know, the impacts of climate aren't the same everywhere. Whether you're inland or on the coast, what sort of um, Like atmospheric issues you're dealing with. Um, But the thing they found was that the conventional wisdom has sort of been around downscaling global climate models, that you can just sort of mathematically tweak these global things, and then you can apply them and you're done. But what these two people from Durban and Boulder said was that, that really that's not the case. The margin of error is way too big in those projections, so you really need to do a much more detailed analysis of individual risks
1: yeah and and then how do you respond to them and, and and figure out who needs to be talking to one another and and you're right it it, it is so different because it, it's not just where it's located and what the climate is like there but it's also the economics the demographics uh is you know obviously it's going to be very different in a in in, in a coastal city on bangladesh than you know Boulder, Colorado, uh, in terms of the, the needs of people, just for basic needs of housing, for example, or water or sanitation, the things that you need to have working really quickly uh, in the aftermath of, of, of a shock. I mean, if you don't have an electric grid to begin with, that's a very different proposition than restoring the grid to, to work. So this is this is a, something we've been talking about at our Verge conferences. We've had, in fact, we had uh, Michael Berkowitz, the director of Hundred Resilient Cities, uh, on stage in conversation uh, with uh, our very own mayor of Oakland, California, Libby Schaff, to talking about which is one of the Hundred Resilient Cities, uh, talking about what that looks like a, a, at this level, and um, obviously technology is 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 one part of this, although it's a it's only one part of it. This is not a techno fix. Uh, but that's one of the pieces we've been discussing at, at, at Verge
2: another sort of node that's brought up in this story is how you train the city staff to be able to deal with this. You've got to get the water department looped in on this. The transportation folks need to know what's going on with emissions. Um, So Boulder, I think, is the one that's being pretty aggressive about hands-on staff training, in addition to all the things that cities do, like climate-specific city planning and some of these things that we're starting to see become more common.
1: And cities, like almost every government agency or or government entity or are so siloed. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't talk to each other. They have their, their own uh, little view of the world. And I think that's one of the big challenges that the chief resilience officers I've spoken with have, which is just getting everyone to, to cooperate, collaborate, and communicate in real time, in short order, when these things uh, happen. And so how do you prepare for that? How do you prepare for the unknown? That's the big challenge.
2: let's shift gears to talk green sports joining me now in the green biz studio is neil duffy who is the co-chair of sustainability at the super bowl 50 host committee we're just in the home stretch now before super bowl 50 kicks off in santa clara south of san francisco in the bay area uh neil thanks so much for joining us
4: great to be here lauren
2: Yeah, so I'm curious, how does one get to be a sustainability executive on a Super Bowl committee? I know you've been involved with America's Cup and some other very large-scale sporting events, but I wouldn't associate that title with the Super Bowl necessarily.
4: Yeah, really good question. And um, I was invited right at the beginning uh, by Daniel Lurie, who is the chairperson of the um, Super Bowl host committee, to join the bid team uh, when we were putting together our bid to the NFL to be considered as a host for this event. Um, Daniel and his board recognized really early on that uh, being sustainable was a really good idea for an event in the Bay Area, um, and given the work that I'd done on America's Cup and other things, he thought that I'd be a, a good addition to the team. So. He asked me to join the team and I jumped at the opportunity.
2: Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about how you think sort of about high level strategy and all of this. Um, We were talking before we went on air about some of the features that are built into the stadium already. It has a large solar array. I know there's some water collection and reuse, uh, but you're really looking at this from sort of the events perspective. I know you have sort of four pillars that you're working off of. Can you explain that?
4: Yeah, sure. So when we decided to go for it and bid for Super Bowl 50, we decided that we wanted to take the opportunity to to uh, look forwards and set a new bar for how host committees go about hosting these events for the next 50 years, rather than just looking backwards. Um, And so as part of that, we um, embrace the strategy to be the most shared, most participatory and most giving Super Bowl ever, uh, all delivered in what we call a net positive way. And for us, being net positive is about using Super Bowl 50 as a platform to do good uh, for the benefit of the entire Bay Area region. There are four pillars um, to that net positive strategy. Uh, The first two are very operational, so reduce our impact on climate change by delivering a low emissions event. And our focus in that area is on two things, um, mainly transportation and temporary power. Those are two big features of any event like ours. The second is to responsibly use uh, materials and resources, focusing on food, water and waste, um, and how we use and reuse those uh, resources throughout the the event footprint. Uh, The third is about um, engaging with fans. Um, and providing opportunities for them to also play a role uh, in making this a net positive event, uh, as opposed to just being passive observers, which can often happen uh, with sustainability initiatives. And then the final piece is to use this event um, as a platform to leave a legacy. Um, The biggest part of that legacy is the most giving Super Bowl ever. 25% of every sponsorship dollar that we raised as the host committee went into a 50 fund, into a thing called the 50 fund that we set up specifically to support high-performing nonprofits in the Bay Area that are working with young people and helping uh, them to overcome the opportunity gap that they often face.
2: Interesting. So in terms of I know some of these operational engagement, marketing challenges would be very applicable to companies sort of across the board. So I'm curious how you then think about the specifics for the Super Bowl. Like you mentioned sort of temporary power and some of these things. Transportation is also going to be a big one since we'll have Super Bowl City in San Francisco, which is about 40 miles north, give or take of Santa Clara, where the stadium is. So how you sort of bridge the gap there and work on sustainability in that respect.
4: It's a really good question. Most of the activity around Super Bowl Fifty will actually happen downtown San Francisco at a thing called Super Bowl City, which is our big fan activation that runs for nine days. Um, opens on the thirtieth of January. We're expecting a million people to come through that um, wow. that, that that village. Um, so most of our focus is actually around that event, not the not Super Bowl Sunday. There are only seventy thousand people that get to go to the game.
2: Only seventy thousand. <laughs> it's a small group. Yeah. So
4: so our focus is on the transportation fund has really been about. Uh, encouraging the fans to make use of existing public transit, um, leave their car at home, um, use uh, car share, use Uber or uh, ride their bike. You know, we're going to have bike valet down there. So it's really about leave your car at home and use some other way of getting to the event.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and through that process, reducing, um, you know, our environmental footprint. Uh, we have to use what's there already. We can't build a new Uh, transportation system just for a a one-day event. That would
2: be a little bit of work in the Bay Area, yeah, yeah. (laughs)
4: Um, And then on the temporary power piece, it's really about um, how do we uh, power uh, what is essentially a pop-up village, a pop-up village for a million people over nine days. There's a lot of temporary power that we use, so we focused on um, reducing our footprint by using renewable diesel from a company called Nesty, um, using fourth-generation generators, um, and... Um, we're going to have some hydrogen fuel cell uh, generators, which we'll be showcasing, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we've got an offset program with our partner, TerraPass, who are going to be offsetting any residual that we have. So there effectively will be a, uh, a common neutral event uh, mm-hmm. from a power perspective. Um, on transportation, the other piece we're doing with transportation, which also ties back to Nesty, is our Fan Express. We're going to have a, a bus service that's going to run between San Francisco and Super Bowl the Super Bowl venue on Super Bowl Sunday, uh, and that fleet of buses will all run on renewable diesel as well. So it's just about trying to be smart about how you use what's already here mm-hmm. uh, and supplementing that with, with uh, renewable solutions um, to try and reduce your footprint and then offsetting any residual.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'm curious in terms of having a Super Bowl in the Bay Area. I know um, sort of the 49ers as an organization, uh, being the team that plays at Levi Stadium, normally they talk a lot about innovation. I think I've heard some of that echoed in the host committee. Um, but it, sort of, did you guys think about tapping into the very famous Silicon Valley ecosystem that's around here in terms of like when you're looking at technologies for storage, there are electric bus company, things like this, but some of them earlier stage than yeah. others?
4: And that's a key point that you mentioned the word early stage. So we, right at the outset, we embraced all of that. Um, but it was quite interesting. We found that the industry seems to... We were a little bit early for what's happening out there um, in order to be able to do things at scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think if we were doing this event in a year's time or even two years' time, I think that we would be t- able to take it to an even higher level. But take electric buses. There aren't enough electric buses around. There are, there are lots of transit buses, but mm-hmm. there aren't any coach-style buses. Yeah. There are only a handful of them available at the moment. Um, and they're all being used to demo to big corporates and big users. So right. you know, <laughs> Investors, yeah. They, we, they, couldn't, they couldn't provide us with 100 electric coaches because mm-hmm. they don't exist at the moment you yeah. know, on a temporary use basis. So a little bit ahead of the curve, I think, in terms of our thinking. I think the, uh, the, the sector generally is starting to catch up. Um, and, yeah, I think if we were to do this again in a year's time, even, we would be able to do stuff a lot more aggressively than we have been able to this time.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, we'll have to see if we get another Super Bowl in the next few years. But um, in the meantime, I was also curious about sort of the other businesses that you're bringing into this, your sponsors. I understand there's going to be sort of an exhibit piece um, at Super Bowl City. Can you talk about um, when you're building some of these temporary structures, how you think about that?
4: So Super Bowl City is really an opportunity for our partners to engage with the fans and to showcase their technology, their solutions. We have an amazing family of sponsors. We have all the big tech companies as partners from, you know, Google and Intel and uh, you name it. Um, They're all involved. Um, And uh, many of them, SAP, many of them are building out um, fan activations in Super Bowl City. Um, And so we put a challenge out to them. We said, well if we as the host committee are going to be net positive, it'd be great if you could support us in that in that mission. Um, and many of them have embraced that. Um, one of the things we did to encourage them um, to do that was created a thing called the Super Bowl City Production Awards, which have been designed specifically to reward um, sponsors and their production companies that have embraced uh, sustainable design principles in terms of uh, the design of their activations, how they've built them, um, how they're operating them, and how they're going to break them down. Mm-hmm. Um because it wouldn't be great if we as a host committee were net positive and all of our partners weren't. Right. Um, so they've really embraced that. And um, I think it's one of, the reason that, one of the reasons that many of them got involved was because there was that alignment of values. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we really have set out to do good and do well. Uh, and many of the brands relate to that. And we provide them with a great um, platform to showcase their commitment to a sustainable future in that Mm way. So, sort of
2: like a mini lead type of system with these structures.
4: Yeah, somebody said to me, wouldn't it be cool if we could have a lead type certification for temporary structures? Mm -hmm. And we said, yeah, that's a really good idea. Let's do it. Yeah. So, this is the kind of what we hope will become the forerunner to a lead type of a certification for. Uh, temporary pop-up facilities in events. Hmm,
2: fascinating um, and with that I know um, lead is obviously well known in sustainability circles and increasingly so is this term net positive positive. and I know um, sort of a lot of times that's not just strictly environmental thinking about mitigating your carbon footprint but also looking at social impacts these sorts of things um, the Bay Area is in an interesting place right now uh, I think there's lots of tension over housing things like this so how do you think about sort of the social impact and um, impact on the community?
4: Yeah, so we decided right up front that we wanted um, sustainability for us. Uh, Keith Bruce, who's the CEO of the host committee, the very first thing thing he said to me was, "Neil, we need to define what sustainability means to us," because as you know, it can mean different things to different people. It's mm-hmm. one of those words that has no edges, slippery. Yeah. <laughs> so you know that this concept of net positive um, was something that that I came up with at the time. It wasn't. It hadn't taken. F- uh, this is three years ago, so it was before um, the net positive movement had really started to take take um, foot. Um, take hold and and the thinking was if we can do more good than bad um, and be net positive then that's a good result it's naive to think that you're going to get everything 100% right
2: Mm -hmm.
4: Uh, and that was a learning from the America's Cup you know we said we wanted to be a carbon neutral um, event but at the end of the day it was only really the host committee that was carbon neutral the teams weren't carbon neutral the fans weren't carbon neutral everything else wasn't carbon so it it wasn't really um, an authentic claim to make when you look back on it now Mm -hmm. Um, So we said, let's be realistic about this, and let's be open and transparent about what we can do, what we can't do, um, and take a holistic view. So it's not just about the environmental piece, it's also about the social piece and the economic piece. Um, And the social piece has been driven by the 50 Fund. Um, We decided to focus on one specific area. We can't solve all the world's problems. It's only one Super Bowl. Um, And so we decided that the thing that we wanted to focus on was young people, because young people are important to the future of this region. And that we wanted to invest in um, their future by helping those that are uh, from low-income communities to overcome the challenges that they might face in getting ahead. Um, you know, working with organisations that focus on where young people live, um, how they play, um, how they learn, and the environment that the, you know, the broader environment that they live in—that's the thing that we've decided to focus on.
2: Mm-hmm. So, is that partnering with regional organisations? Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
4: So um, as of today, we've already granted over se- uh, the 50 Fund's already granted over seven million dollars yeah. to over 300 and something organisations. Uh, there've been some big grants, there've been some small grants, um, and if you go to our website, 50fund.org, there's a very detailed breakdown of who's received the money in what specific areas of, of focus and um you can read that to your heart's desire and see exactly where the money's gone
2: (laughs) right right and then finally um last question i know this is another one sort of applies across the board but how do you measure all of these things at the end of the day when you want to look back and say these years of work sort of how did it shake out
4: yeah so we're we are working on that and we plan after the event to bring out a um Uh, We've developed a reporting portal together with SAP Hmm. um, that we're going to go live with after the event that will basically report out on how we did against our organizational goals. So most shared, most participatory, most giving. Mm
2: -hmm.
4: Um, The giving piece is easy. How much money did you give away? And we won't be able to measure the impact now, but in time to come, we'll be able to say, well, what difference did that make? And most shared is pretty easy. How many people shared on social media? Mm -hmm. And most participatory, how many people participated in Super Bowl? Um, 50. And then on the sustainability or net positive front against those four pillars, we're also going to be measuring um, how we've done. So on the transportation piece, uh, we're working with the Bay Area Air Quality Management District mm-hmm. who are doing a footprinting exercise for us. And they're going to be able to show what were we, how were we were able to reduce our footprint um, compared to what would have been kind of business as usual versus the, the, pa- the plan and the policy that we adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, Terra Pass are doing a full footprinting exercise for us on Super Bowl City. So it's those types of things that we're doing. And, um, you know, I've, I've always maintained that measurement around sustainability is as much art as it is science. Right. Um, and if, particularly when it comes to the net positive piece, um, because there are both qualitative and quantitative measures. Mm-hmm. And it's about taking, again, a holistic view of all of that and asking yourselves at the end of the day um, and looking in the mirror and asking yourself, were we net positive? Did we, did we do more good than bad?
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, and being open about where we did, did well and maybe not so well. Right. Well,
2: I'm sure you'll have lots of sustainability executives curiously (laughs) reading your your report. But Neil Duffy, who is the co-chair of sustainability for the Super Bowl 50 host committee. Thank you so much for joining us.
4: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
2: You've heard us teasing it for weeks, and the time has finally arrived. This week, our State of Green Business Report 2016 came out, and Joel, you were there to unveil it in a webcast.
1: I was. Uh, well, this is a report we've been doing. This is our ninth annual report, uh, and the purpose, as we've talked about in the past, is simply to step back. From our day-to-day coverage of all these topics and take a look at how we're doing and, and where we're going. So it's uh, two parts of it. It's the how we're doing is the, the index, State of Green Business Index, looks at um, about 30, a little over 30 metrics of corporate performance for 500 uh, S&P 500 companies and 1,600 global companies that are part of the MSCI uh, index. Um, and uh, where we're going are the 10 trends that we think are worth watching in 2016 and and really beyond that. Uh, We we, we unveiled the 10 trends. Uh, Lauren, you wrote one on supply chains going high-tech, and we have one on the circular economy and green infrastructure growth, uh, the mining and extraction industries cleaning up their act. Uh, the Blue Economy, about the ocean. I think that was really interesting around the business of oceans and sustainability, a whole range of different topics from shipping to to uh, fisheries to uh, green infrastructure again, um, and, and on and on. So that was, it was good. We had a webcast, as we always do, with uh, Richard Madison, the CEO of True Cost PLC, which is our uh, partner, on particularly on the index, providing the data. And John Davies, who we've had on the... On, GreenBiz350 in the past our vice president and senior analyst uh, who looks really at the state of the profession of what sustainability executives are thinking.
2: Yeah, and the cool part is you can download this all for free. We'll make sure to throw the link in the notes for this show. Um, but yeah, I think the, the 10 trends are definitely fun to watch through the year to see the stories that play out. I know one from last year that we've really seen come to a head is stranded assets, the whole idea of keeping unburned fossil fuels in the ground.
1: Yeah that and uh, as we said earlier food waste was another one we called out last year and green bonds which really uh, just exploded this past year uh, we 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 saw that early last year that that was going to be uh, uh, the growth of 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 those financial instruments and and some others so yeah, we're, it's uh, and of course it's not all just in the next year. Or three. These trends really do unfold over two or three years. In fact, somebody asked uh, in the webcast the other day asked, um, you know, would be great if you go back and look at some of the trends you you looked at over the past few years to see how they've done and uh, or not done. <laughs> so maybe we'll do that. Well,
2: oh, that sounds like a story assignment. I <laughs> I <laughs> I we'll so. jump on that one. Uh, yeah, but as you mentioned, Rich uh, had some really interesting points. Obviously, true cost is very focused on natural capital and quantifying some of the the financial impacts of, of environmental issues um and here's a little taste of what he had to say
0: so, so really what we questioned last year was you know is sustainable growth the elephant in the room is it possible to grow your revenue whilst decoupling that growth from environmental impact i mean that's clearly the the holy grail this year what we found was quite interesting. We showed that basically from 2013, the growth in natural capital cost to 2014 uh, was 5%. This slowed to 2%. Uh, last year it slowed to 1% for U.S. companies, um, Sorry, to 2%. And in this analysis for this year, that growth slowed to 1% for U.S. companies and decreased by 8% for global companies. So for the first time since uh, 2010, we saw a decline in the absolute use of natural capital and impact on natural capital. Now that's a very positive signal um, because against that decline we were seeing an increase in revenue. So for the first time we have an initial indication that we're seeing some kind of uh, efficiency gain and decoupling from revenue growth from environmental impact and the destruction of our ecosystems which is quite quite a positive signal. but it may be too soon to call that trend. So we, we are cautious about that. I think whilst I said it's too early to call a trend on uh, sustainable growth, I think it's not too early to call a trend on investor mobilization. I think there was huge collective action in 2015 um, and that we saw many, many investors um, measuring and disclosing the carbon footprint of their portfolios. Um, so the Montreal Pledge, for example. Um, attracted 120 signatories representing over $10 trillion in assets under management. Um, and we saw the Portfolio Decarbonization Coalition um, forming to cut greenhouse gas emissions out of their investment portfolios, Smash through their initial target of $100 billion uh, in one year to now $230 billion in assets under management. So just to be clear, that's those are specific dedicated funds that are dedicated towards reducing carbon emissions in the portfolios of some of the largest asset owners globally. So that's quite a big movement. I think we're seeing two trends compounding here. We're seeing a divestment trend. Uh, So the number of investment firms and asset owners signing up to uh, or committing to make divestments of fossil fuels has now increased $2.6 trillion worth of of asset under management, Um, and that's compounding with a trend focused on seeking opportunities, so we're seeing a tripling of the number of green bonds issued over the last two years. So with those two things, you're essentially seeing investors rebalancing their portfolios away from uh, activities that contribute towards climate change and towards activities that contribute towards sustainable development. And that's a real shift that we observed in, in a shift in assets in 2015. Um, And that was surprising even to us.
2: So one thread that we've been following very closely, you mentioned it was one of our 10 trends for 2016, is this whole concept of the circular economy. That's this idea that you can drastically cut down on the raw materials in the manufacturing process by a continuously... Cycling them back through supply chains. So one of the things that often comes up, though, when you're thinking about how these production models can come to fruition is materials. Um, Obviously, how you handle plastic isn't the same as an organic material or even some of these advanced polymers and even powdered metals that people are using for 3D printing and additive manufacturing. Um, what it comes down to, I realized, in reporting a story this week on why materials will make or break the circular economy, is that a lot of this really comes back to green chemistry.
1: Yeah, green chemistry is one of those terms. It's been around for a while, uh, really created by... Uh, by John Warner, who uh, you spoke with this week, and uh, along with uh, Paul Anastas, who served for a while in, in the Obama administration as an assistant EPA director, they wrote the textbook called Green Chemistry, I think, uh, where they also uh, put forth the 12 principles of green chemistry that are the basis for some high school, college, graduate programs around the world in terms of thinking about what does green chemistry mean? It, it actually means something. It's not just a a, a cool marketing term. And uh, John's an interesting guy before forming, uh, the lab he, he now has called Warner Babcock. Uh, he spent nine years with Polaroid. Uh, so he came out of the, came out of the corporate world and at, at Warner Babcock, they're look they're looking at, at new innovative technologies and how chemistry can be used, uh, to create a number of things be really interesting. And I don't think this was part of what they were looking for, but just last year, I, I was just sort of, uh, tickled to see this, uh, they came up with one of their first products, which is uh, a way to reverse gray hair, rever- <laughs> reverting to its natural color in 90 minutes by uh, re- uh, mirroring the natural process for hair pigmentation. It's a it's a whole non toxic way of of, of Getting the hair, the I don't know the follicles or something to do something that they would do naturally. So there's no no dyes or, or t- coal tar or any of that stuff. So I don't think that they, you know in terms of the world world's great problems, gray hair is not really one of them. <laughs> I, it's a badge of honor for me personally, uh, but. Um, it just you never know what you're going to find.
2: Right. And when you mentioned something like hair dye, that's obviously known as being very toxic. It's interesting because one of the things about the circular economy is that toxic materials are not necessarily forbidden. Um, it's they have to be kept in the production loop in a safe way, obviously that's a goal, but in a productive way throughout their valuable life so you're not just disposing of them after one use. Um, And that was one of the things I really wanted to ask John about, um, and he had some some really interesting thoughts on sort of how the circular economy, as lofty an idea as it sounds like, could actually be a more pragmatic way to deal with some of these toxics while the green chemists are in the lab looking for long-term replacements.
5: The fundamental of green chemistry is that you look at the intrinsic hazard of a material and we work to a day where the intrinsic hazard to the materials are as minimum as possible. And I don't believe in zero anything. Obviously, everything's always going to have some impact, but uh, you know different from one fundamental of the circular economy i don't if green chemistry suggests that the chemists stay in the lab working until things are truly as 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 less toxic as possible, because the problem is if you can't really engineer human behavior if you sit back and you say everyone is safe as long as everyone does the right thing, the problem of course, is as human to humans and some people aren't going to do the right thing, and so it's you know there's this great quote I won't name the company but you know you know a company that you know sold electric equipment you know someone said gee there's toxic materials in the power cord what if a baby chews on the power cord and the principal well don't have your baby chew on the power cord well <laughs> so that can't be the world that we live in you know if if we if we just claim intended use for everything that. It's just not the way the world really truly works. And so, green chemistry aspirationally says instead of inventing technology for a perfect world, invent technology for a real world and expect. That stuff is going to happen. That trucks are going to tip over. That people are going to misuse that, and things are going to happen. And the role of the chemist is not to invent for people doing the right thing, but effectively doing for people doing the likely thing. And the likely thing is not the same. Now, Mm -hmm. at the same time, the circular. So the thing is, is that maybe in many times, the green green chemistry is not attainable. Okay, there are materials in commerce that we simply haven't invented that are alternatives for. So the only thing society can do, or you know, must do, is the circular economy. And so I see the circular economy as being required until some utopian vision when everything is safe. But that 's a utopian vision, and perfection doesn't exist, so it 's here forever. <laughs> you know, but I see the two as being you know the circular economy is the real world approach today in green chemistry is the aspirational approach that makes things inherently and intrinsically safe as opposed to within you know boots and cycles to protect human health and the environment.
2: Mhm that's an interesting way to look at it sort of stepping stone or one more aspirational. Um so then right. yeah and when it comes to specific applications that uh, you know you mentioned that people are asking you all the time is it solvents or what is it? I was curious to learn more about the recycled asphalt example. We've heard yeah. a little bit about that sort of how that uh came to be a focus.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so again you know, for for me
2: you know, I, you
5: know we we were looking at the issue of of asphalt. We have a uh, non-formaldehyde-free, non-MDI wood adhesive. We have a hair coloring technology. We have an asphalt technology. We have an ALS drug in clinical trials. We've got a cancer, drug, and clinical trials, so we're all over the place, just trying to chip away at coming up with things that are either manufactured in less uh, toxic and environmentally impactful ways or whatever, and we're just trying to do the best that we can. The asphalt, the whole idea was initially, you know, I looked at it, there's a, a billion miles of asphalt pavement in the United States alone, and every year, something like 10% gets repaved, what they do is they dig up the top inch or so, and they put it in a landfill. Because the sunlight and the air has oxidized it, it's too brittle to really reuse. Now, some people might take 5 or 10% grind it up and use it, but for the most part, it goes into a landfill and thrown away. It's a lot of waste. All that material is not being used. So they have to take virgin asphalt and virgin aggregate and remake it and repave it. And I said to myself, what if we came up with an additive that allowed you to reuse the the oxidized and uh, damaged stuff and just put it back down? Uh, and so that was the the, the desire and actually came up with something that in fact does that. It's not as easy as you would think because the oxidized stuff is brittle and hard. Say, okay, well, put something in that softens it. But wait a minute, if you soften asphalt and then you go drive on it, the car's going to sink in. That's not the solution. So how to come up with a molecule that kind of had a trigger in it that starts by softening and then turns around and rehardens it at the same time. And so that molecule is what we have and the formulation is called delta S. And it's uh asphalt and the company we started is called Collaborative Aggregates. And it's out there selling fifty five gallon drums and getting spec in state roads and doing all kinds of things that just, just just hit the market, I think, May of last year. So it's less than a year old, but it's already all over the place as a as a commercially viable thing. And what's interesting is there's so many sustainability benefits to it first of all it's you know there are products out there that say they do similar things but when people have to use that they have to wear personal protection outfits and everything because the skull and crossbones on the bottles whereas this stuff here is literally edible
1: i i love this stuff it's just really really interesting where lauren is this all this going
2: Yeah, another point that John raised during our conversation was the need to not only think about better reuse strategies and creative approaches to to recycling and some of that in the short term, but to also really double down on investment and innovation for the next generation of materials. Um, The problem from a sustainability standpoint, however, is that there still isn't a real pipeline of chemists coming out of universities with a background in any of this stuff. So here were his thoughts on that whole area.
5: About two months ago, um, Bloomberg... Uh, had a conference in their headquarters in New York on the circular economy. And I was asked to speak at that, and there was probably 20 speakers or panelists and whatnot, and there was a couple hundred people in the audience. And I had to kind of joke and make make the uh, observation that I was the only chemist. That everyone there talking about sustainability and environmental impacts in the circular economy were well, from the brands, the Levi's and the Nikes and you know the the companies that are selling to the consumers and I said isn't you know one of the issues that 's facing us right now is that yes, the companies and the brands get this but they don't invent the materials. A designer can only design a product that are of the materials that they have available to them. And if the basic building blocks are not sustainable, no designer can weave it and solder it and glue it together to make a sustainable product if the fundamental building blocks aren't sustainable. Now, if you look at any chemistry department, in the United States of the world and you pretend you're a student and you look at what classes you must take to get a degree you will find that not one university ever offers a class on toxicology to chemists or environmental health you know mechanisms so the the only people in the world who are capable of inventing a new material are not part of this conversation and so the people who want to have the safe products don't have the skill set to make fundamentally safe materials. And the people who have the skill set to make it aren't learning it. And so that's the big impasse. And so I, that that's where I see the biggest challenge, but also the biggest opportunity.
1: Yeah, as I said, this is really interesting stuff. And it, it really points up that if you're going to create a circular economy, you have to think about – what you put into that cycle at the beginning and the, the, the more benign the possible and that's where green chemistry is going to play a continued role so we're going to keep watching it
2: So let's fast forward to next week once the Super Bowl craziness has subsided. Joining us right now to give us a preview is Green Biz
3: Managing Editor Elsa Wenzel. What have we got going on? Hi, Lauren. Um, Well, on Monday, I'm sure a lot of people will be drinking Bloody Marys at work (laughs) and clicking around our stories. And one of them could be, if not Monday, later next week, um, your piece about your field trip to other labs in the Mission District in San Francisco. It looks pretty cool. They're working on things like... Soft robots, right? Um, Prosthetics with exoskeletons, 3D printing, solar tracking systems, and a lot more. Um, by the way, Other Labs founder is Saul Griffith, a MacArthur Genius Award winner who also started Makani Power, um, which Google bought a few years ago. So I'm interested in seeing that. Also, our, our columnist, John Elkington, who's famous for coining terms like the triple bottom line, will bring us a fresh Elkington report that urges, uh, urges us to drop the sustainability kaleidoscope. It's a call to action for a less fragmented approach to sustainability. And senior writer Heather Clancy is looking into an update on electronics recycling. Um, and she will also explore resilience plans in some surprising places like Mino, North Dakota, or maybe it's my not or may not. Why, why, why not? <laughs> um, I'd have to ask a local how to really pronounce it. So there will be much more. But in the meantime, I'm looking forward to some yoga in our office on Tuesday. Wish you could join us. Yes. Namaste.
2: One place you can do yoga with us is at GreenBiz 16 in Phoenix, February 23rd through 25th. You can get more info about that. And another event, Hawaii. We're going to Hawaii in June to talk technology and sustainability. No, you won't want to miss that one. You can find out more about both of those by going to greenbiz.com and clicking on the events tab.
1: Well, the clock is winding down before we get the final gun and I'm going to stop my Super Bowl analogies right there. That's our 350 podcast for this week. You can find the links to organizations, stories, and events that we've mentioned in this episode by going to greenbiz.com/slash 350. Thanks as always to 350's producer, Sir Rhea Melconian. Uh, you can subscribe to Greenbiz350 through a variety of channels. If you like to get your podcast coming to you, uh, just go to iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher. And of course, you'll find it every Friday morning on uh, GreenBiz.com, and which you can find out about by subscribing to our daily email newsletter called GreenBuzz. We always love to hear your feedback and comments. Send those to 350 at GreenBiz.com. And for all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.